Rick Madison here with the lovely Carrie Rempel from Okanagan School of Business. Welcome, Carrie. Why, thank you, Rick. So, uh, full disclosure, I've worked with Carrie, um, well, for the last year down at the old college and uh, had a glorious time. We've we've sat, we've chatted, we've uh, worked together, and now I get to finally have her sit down and give me her views on the world. So, I'm very excited about this. Um, so, for the listeners... Tell tell them, tell me about you. About me. Wow. I've never uh, never thought about that really, Rick, in terms of what people might be interested in. Uh, I am an import to the Kelowna area, although I don't know how, at what point you're no longer an import. So I've been here for almost 20 years now. Um, but it still feels in some ways like I'm new. So I've been a professor at the college for almost that long. And I would say maybe an advocate and a supporter for the nonprofit sector for that entire time as well. Um, I kind of eat, live and breathe what I do. So yeah. Now, now you have um, some initials and, and uh, letters behind your mm-hmm. name. Care to share that with the group? Uh, I have taken a circuitous route to where I am, I guess, would That's be the $10 easiest. word. It is a $10 word. Thank you for letting me use it. I feel special now. Um, I started out uh, thinking that I wanted to be an engineer because my dad said I couldn't be a mechanic. So that was the only option left then for a professional woman. Uh, didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. So I switched routes and went into sports administration. Um, and those days called phys ed, which is now a kinesiology degree. So another fancy word that I get to use. And I worked in the field for a while for the athletics department at the University of Alberta, doing everything from sport camps to running clinics to running their sports center, uh, selling beer, selling tickets. So you get to do the whole thing. And I quickly realized that without another credential, that was a definite glass ceiling for me. There was nowhere I would go. So I had a choice. You could go back and do two years for uh, to top up a business degree, or I could just do an MBA. So at a tender age of 26, which is way too young to be doing an MBA, that's what I did. Graduated. um, All my friends moved to Vancouver, so I moved to Vancouver Mm -hmm. and uh, tried to get a job and ended up consulting for a bit and then getting full-time work and eventually meandering my way through many, many cities and companies back to, or here to the Okanagan. So what what drove you to, was it a job or was it the college or what brought you to our lovely valley? (laughs) Was it a man? Well, kind of. I met my husband in Edmonton, both, um, I was there for a short-term contract back in the city again. He was there going to school, um, finished up his credential, and uh, and he was from, he grew up in the Okanagan. And I spent most of my weekends climbing when I lived in Alberta. So out onto the, out in the rocks, either in Banff or Banff area or Jasper. And I was like, why am I driving three and a half hours to go climb when I could just move to Kelowna and climb all the time? Uh, so we moved because why not? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? The yeah. rocks are here. Yeah, too bad the climbing partners weren't. So haven't had a lot of climbing since I moved back here. But I uh, was in one of those weird positions when you move to a, to really a, a town slash city like Kelowna where I'm overqualified for everything and underqualified for everything else. So <laughs> I looked around and I was like, I-, I can teach. Everyone can teach. And was lucky enough to get a position and then realized quite quickly that not everybody can teach. And it's very, very difficult work. Uh, but I stuck with it. So that's how I got here. An area of town. 
you live in this area of town. It's experienced a lot of change in the last year. You've you've lived there for how long? 17, 18 years. Okay, so uh, give people an, an idea of the region you, you live in, and then we'll chat about some of the changes mm-hmm. it's gone through. Mm-hmm. We moved into the north end of Kelowna almost as soon as we moved to Kelowna. Um, so picture sleepy, sleepy little community. Uh, my husband's parents were abhorred at the price that we paid at that point in time because it's way too much, which it's now worth four times that uh, if you were to purchase in our area. Uh, It was quite quiet when we moved in. Lots of uh, seniors who uh, had lived there for the majority of their lives. Neighbors would come around, teach you how to prune your trees and prune your your grapevines because everybody there had some sort of connection to orchards or um, agriculture. A lot of people had been there a long time. Um, and then as we move through the years to, to present day, a lot of shift in development, um, some of it really, really positive. So the Society of Hope buildings that were the old wartime houses being switched up for some modern accommodation, uh, allowing for that mixed use between um, low income and uh, market rentals. And we've seen a lot of shift in terms of um the character of the the people that are in the residences. So we're seeing a lot more younger families now, fewer rentals than we did probably 10 years ago. Uh, and then, of course, all of the industrial changes. So the loss of the mill and the changes to the waterfront there, and then just the increase in what's now known as the brewery district, which used to just be nothing <laughs> when now, I got there. I've, I've only heard of people that drink this, this beer you speak yes. of. Um, are you one of those people that have... I may have imbibed a tiny time or two. So you yeah. that is that uh, adding to the character of the neighborhood? Like, is it is it a positive uh, experience for that those breweries to be there? I, you know, that's a really interesting question because I think we're right in the middle of of the change that's happening. So uh, at first, it was novel. And unique. And it was like, wow, this is sort of fun to have this in our neighborhood. Uh, And now I think we're going through some of those growing pains as we see um, post-revelry folks moving out into the community as they head home. Um, I'm a cyclist, so Richter used to be my go-to street to come home on, and now it's it's not the safest street to ride as a as a cyclist because folks are panicked about parking. They're not always checking. People are running across the street without always looking. People are maybe are are walking to other destinations, maybe not in full uh, control of all of their faculties at at all points of time. So it's just a it's an area that uh, we're sort of struggling through some of those growing pains. I think uh, overall. Your diplomacy is exceptional, by the way. Because I can see both sides. I really, really can. I was young once, um, not so young anymore. But uh, the other thing that it's brought in is it's not just the breweries now. You can see all the related sorts of businesses that are coming in. So there's nothing better than having a cheesemonger down the street for me, being able to stop in, um, adding to some of the other amenities that we already had. So the ball diamond, having the curling rink there. It's a really interesting environment and I'm seeing some vibrancy that's never been there before. COVID was an interesting addition to our neighborhood too. A lot more dogs now in the neighborhood. Lots of people out walking their dogs, People, more people riding their bikes than ever before. Um, and then there's, you know, there's other things. We've got the overnight sheltering 
that's in our neighborhood too. I consider that to be our neighborhood. And we've seen that transition over the last five years from uh, spaces around Knox Mountain to the curling rink to now the formalized outdoor sheltering areas. So, you know, you, uh, it's a very eclectic very uh, quickly changing kind of neighborhood. So I don't know what it's going to be, but I do know that we're starting to see things like um, conflict in use. So recently we had a group of residents who came around with petitions talking about trees and cutting down trees and whether or not um, we should be allowing some of these new developments to cut down mature trees. They're replanting young trees, but we're losing um, the benefits, the long-term benefits of having those long, uh, older, more mature trees in our neighborhood. So you're starting to see all of these conflicts kind of come together. Now, you know, you're looking at the development. Uh, houses are going up right to the very tippy top of what's allowed right. in terms of the, the designation for zoning. So the nature is changing, nature of the area. You know, I talk to some of my neighbors and they're often development is great or you're wrecking our neighborhood because now there's all these big buildings going in or there's all these people coming into our space. And so I, I certainly can see both sides. There's advantages and disadvantages to that. But I don't think we're going to understand the full extent of the change uh, for probably five to 10 years yet as they figure out what's happening with the frontage. Um, as we consider what use looks like for Knox Mountain Park as well, how that's going to change with uh, just the sheer increase in numbers. And it's the most accessible park we have in Kelowna. So. Oh, no, it's it's uh, whenever I've been to Knox, there's usually people walking, running, hiking, biking. Mm -hmm. And it, it it is truly one of those great places. Whenever I go, I always think I got to come back here more often. But it it's it's getting busier. Yeah. For sure. 5 a.m. is great. There's only a few of us out at that point in time. So if you're wanting some alone time in nature, that's your that's your window. And you and Kylene have done some some profound research. Tell me about that and just a why you did it and b what what it was for the the listening audience here. Mm -hmm. Well, profound is is an interesting word to use. I think exploratory really might uh, categorize that better. Kylene and I have done some work to try to understand what, for the Kelowna area in particular, um, to understand more from the voice of people with lived experience of homelessness and those that work most closely with them, what they perceive to be some of the key factors that made them vulnerable to the situation that they find themselves in, um, in an un unhoused or recently unhoused scenario. And then also to ask people who are deeply embedded in, in that situation to say what kinds of things would have solved or would have stopped that slide into the situation that they're in. Um, and the motivation to do that work really is that this is our community and these are people that are part of our community. Uh, choices that we make all the time with respect to policy, uh, zoning, all of these things have impacts on how people are able to live and grow. And I have children. I want my children to grow up in a community that supports everybody. Uh, we know for many folks in the Okanagan, we're one paycheck away from being precariously housed or are already precariously housed. That divide between those that have a lot and those that have almost nothing is is vastly growing. So I think for me, the motivators are to understand more what are those those factors that are are setting the stage for vulnerability and and what are the possible things that we could do or the system could do to stop that. 
So we're talking about uh, the people that are are on that razor's edge and could come become homeless within if, if just a few disruptive moments happen in their lives, mm-hmm. they could actually slide into homelessness mm-hmm. or have have uh experienced that unhoused state and are now on the other side, but often are still very precariously housed. Yes. So you talked a lot about the, some of the things that we could do. So there mm-hmm. was some, some resolution there or some ideas around treatment and and thoughts and maybe some wraparound mm-hmm. services then. That's, you know, the wraparound services support people that are in trouble now. And what a lot of folks talked to us about was that had their situation been addressed early on, that they would never have been in the situation that they were. So many people would describe, and I'll just give you a couple of examples quickly, um, having a workplace accident. We know that not everyone who's in a work working situation is properly insured or protected in case of an injury. Um, so being injured, being unable to work, losing your source of income, then, then losing your housing because you aren't set up in the system in a way that the system can support you. Or others talked about um, uh, having a a significant illness, having to move to Kelowna to have that illness treated uh, in the course of doing that, not being able to work, losing their housing where they were, and then being in a community where the housing is so incredibly expensive. Um, and, And so essentially being discharged from a hospital into homelessness. Right. So I had the opportunity to interview a number of food bank clients Mm -hmm. for the uh, Be an Angel campaign. And I was amazed at how quickly things can turn for some households. Uh, One particular fellow um, was dealing with cancer treatment, couldn't work. His disability ran out for whatever reason, insurance reasons Mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of other things. His wife left him with the two children and he was uh, also, just to add another cherry on top, in the witness protection program. So uh, very isolated for a number of reasons. But um, he, he just, he was, he had not a lot of options. And so uh, that's how quickly it can turn was he was a, a white collar professional and, it, it you know, no drugs or anything else. It was just literally just a series of factors mm-hmm. that led to his precarious situation yeah. that he was in. Yeah. And yeah. that's what your research was about. Yeah. It, it, and it's not it's not that our research was novel or new, but we really wanted to investigate it from the Kelowna perspective. But that's what people talked about. It was one thing happened and I could manage that. The second thing happened and okay, now things are are hard, but I'm I'm okay. The third thing happens and they're no longer able to call on the resources that they may have had. Seniors are another group, uh, a population group that we often don't talk about. But um, in Kelowna or in our area, we have a lot of people that are relying on their pensions, their own fixed incomes. And as we see rent evictions and as we see the... um, the, the change in what the rental market looks like, these folks are no longer able to support and stay in the homes that they may have been living in for many, many years. It, it just seems like there's, um, you know, you have a perfect storm between inflation, higher cost of housing, and just 
it, it seems like a small bump in the road could literally mm-hmm. just send them careening off yeah. into uh, the abyss. Yeah. And it's easy to look at just the economic factors when we think about things like this, Rick, but also consider the fact that when people move here, they may be leaving their entire social network behind. Right. Or uh, I'm not sure how many of your listeners might be new or newer to Kelowna, but when I came here, I found it actually reasonably difficult to find a social network. Um, so having kids is one of those things that allows you to sort of you find all the kids that are doing parents that are doing the same things your kids are and you form a network. But for many of our folks, especially those that are working two jobs, um, how do they find that social network or think about I'm, I mean, I'm at the college. Um, I also do work with post-secondary at, at UBCO as well. And how many international students do we have coming in? And they're they're here. They're working sometimes two or more jobs. Not that I'm aware. I can't can't be can't know that. But uh, working several jobs, they don't have time to form those networks, and their families are are so very far away. You are a one income family. Is that a reality for to to stay in Kelowna and and maybe what what would be a potential idea for a lot of people that are in the same situation and. How how do they move forward? How do you continue on that particular path? Oh, I would say, you know, it's not, uh, I make a, a, a reasonable income. I would be in dire straits if I were renting right now. So we bought a number of years ago at a time when the market was affordable for families. And I had a, we had a down payment saved up. So we were able to put um, something down on our house Um, But our mortgage payment right now would be half of what somebody is paying in rent. Um, So that's one of the things that makes it viable for us to be a single income family. We've gone down to one vehicle we have for many years. So that also cuts down on some of our costs. But there are sacrifices that we then uh, have to uh, talk about as a family. So our vacations tend to be local. They tend to be um, related to things that are camping or going out and doing things outside that are low to no cost. Uh, we can't go to Florida and we can't go to Disneyland and we can't go to Mexico because those things are are sort of beyond us. So we try to look at, at uh, for us, it's important to explore the natural environment around us too and to, to establish for our kids that sense of why the environment is important. So So those things work, but it's not... I don't know how most families would be able to be a single income family unless you're um, making very, very good money in Kelowna if you don't already own your own home or don't have some other uh, income like a rental suite or something to support you. It is it is difficult. And uh, you mentioned earlier about inflation just over the last two months, like the increase in our grocery bills. So we actually are now looking at what is it that we're cutting down? You know, what is it that we're no longer buying um, those extra coffees at work are not happening anymore. The coffee needs to be made at home and taken to work. Those are the kinds of choices that uh, I think single income families have to make. And we we did it partly uh, because we could um, and partly because uh, it was it it reduced some stress for us, too. So managing child care, having two kids in daycare, um, trying to get them to and from school with one vehicle, two parents working, those things were, were really difficult to manage in terms of stress. So, so you probably did the math, too, which was in, in some households, they figured out child care 
it's just not an option. Mm -hmm. So they having one parent stay home is actually yeah. more equitable for the whole family. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's cost effective. Mm -hmm. um, equitable, I think, is a, is a tough thing. I, I think for my husband, uh, staying home would have been a challenge, was a challenge in the beginning, because normally it's the... Uh, the mom who's staying home. So so bucking those gender roles, I think, was was tough. Um, it, it was easier on our family uh, to just have one person uh, um, working and one person at home. I, I know that can't work for every family, though. And I tell you, I'm a much better mom if I'm a working mom. <laughs> And, and that's, that is actually more common than people might actually mm -hmm. know. But one thing that's interesting about that is, so as you as the breadwinner, do you feel like you're owed a, a coffee? Like if, if I, I'm making the money, so I feel like I should, I should be able to buy a sundress if I want, or I, I should be able to buy a coffee if I feel like it. I'm, I'm making, like, is, is there any kind of, and I'm not trying to create discord, I'm really mm -hmm. not. Kind of, mm -hmm. but I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, but is that you feel owed a little bit that, you know, you're you're holding down the fort, so to speak. So you're owed a little bit. And I'm just speaking yeah. from people I speak to. Well, and I, I wonder if that might be a gender based comment there, Rick. I, I'm wired differently than that. So I, and maybe I'm now gender putting a gender label on this. But for me, it's what's best for the family. So I don't. And it's I'm it's a little bit selfish for me. Like I said, I'm a better mom when I work. Um, to stay at home all the time, I would probably drive my entire family uh, away. <laughs> <laughs> if I were uh, at home full time, I just I'm not wired that way. Um, and so for me, I look at what's best for our family. Having a parent at home means that, and this particular parent at home means that uh, when the drains get clogged. When uh, the roof could leak, uh, when the trees need to be pruned, um, these are all tasks that I could probably engage in. But my husband is more skilled at those things than I am. Uh, he does all of the shopping, all of the um, the majority of the cooking. Try to step up on the weekends. He does the laundry, pickups, drop offs. Like there's there's no lack of work that he's taking on. Mm -hmm. So I don't see that as. I've earned something because I'm working outside the home. That's that's not really how we would perceive it. I couldn't do what I do if he weren't at home. And that's the like that's the absolute bottom line is that when you're thinking about families that have one income, that the person that's working couldn't actually do anything if they've got a family without that second person. So it definitely is a partnership. And and Rick, I would support it if you wanted to go get a sundress. I would I would help to make sure that happened. For I would you. look decadent in a sundress. I agree. I just know it because it would bring up my eyes like a nice, I don't know, eggplant. Man. Oh, see, I was thinking sunny yellow. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bright, brighten up the yeah, world. Absolutely. So you teach at the college, and you've taught there for a number of years. Other than a paycheck, it gives you something back. Talk talk to me about what teaching gives you back from mm -hmm. the students. It's a uh, may I be so bold as to say it's a pretty selfish kind of a career. Whoa. It is. I, I don't know of another career where I can sort of mix together everything that I love to do um, and still get paid for it at the same time. So there is there's also the added benefit of y you can't help but stay young. 
young at heart, young in your thinking when every year new people are coming in. And now our students you know, sort of span the full age range, but uh, they force you to stay kind of current and they force you to, to think about things from perspectives that were I in another job and not faced with new people coming in all the time, I might not have that advantage. So I love that. Um, the students uh, are continually challenging you to think differently about the world. So it's a two-way street. Well, I get to pose challenging questions to them. Uh, they, in turn, want to know why I still think certain ways. And and there's that lovely sort of peer-to-peer uh, -peer discussions that you can have when you uh, – when you realize that you're just in a learning environment with other people who want to learn. Um, and so that's what's great about my job is I never stop learning. And the college also doesn't make me choose between the things that are important to me. So making change in our community, helping our community, they, they don't stop me from doing those things uh, while I'm also doing my work teaching. So they enable me to bring community-engaged uh, projects into my classroom. They let me do research uh, and encourage us to do research with our peers out in community. So I can't think of a of a better of a better job to have. Like it's it's the best. We're also looking for professors. If anybody is interested, I've got some courses I haven't filled for the fall. Just saying. <laughs> and there's your want at with the Okanagan School of Business. Now, uh, full disclosure, I've taught at the at the college and I loved it. And I have to say the the ongoing friendships that I created with uh, with the students just helping them maybe get a job interview or just uh, spending a little extra time because they they needed somebody to mm -hmm. comment about something going on in their lives. Just really, it's immersive. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, I really enjoyed my time. So again, if you're out there and, and you're thinking, wow, what do I do with the next part of my life? Teaching does give you a lot back. Yes, it's amazing. Yeah. And that's why I say it's selfish is I get as much back from the students as, as I contribute. COVID was difficult on learning institutions across Canada. I can't speak for the world, but for across Canada. Um, you were an advocate for in-class teaching. I know that because I taught at the college. Um, just explain a little bit about what do you think in-class teaching gives to the students? Mm -hmm. Because I know that there was a, there was a divide there for yep. sure. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I'm an advocate for learning that meets the needs of students. And accessibility is really important, I think. And so online classes uh, are an important piece for many students' lives. Um, so I have been a student who has taken classes online, and I loved them. And they met my needs, and I was a good fit for online classes. Not every student is a good fit for online classes, though, and not every class, even for those that do like it, is that a good fit. So for me, taking statistics by distance or online uh, modality, not, not a great fit for me. I need people around me to help and support. So I, I really think it's uh, – I wanted to see us getting back to face-to-face -face classes because I knew that students needed the connectivity, um, in particular uh, post-COVID. Students needed to get back into finding a rhythm, um, being able to interact uh, in real life situations and uh, sort of figuring out how to do that socializing again because we'd been so far removed. So definitely wanted to see us back in the classroom. But overall, I'm an advocate for a mix and for giving students that flexibility and being able to choose. 
I also know our students are coming to us from lots of different backgrounds and in our region from different uh, different areas where they may have to travel two hours to come to a face-to-face class. So I, I am a real advocate to, to finding that mix. Um, whatever kind of class you're in, though, uh, the, the biggest thing is to have professors and well-designed classes that fit the learning that you need to do. So whatever, you know, I'm kind of agnostic that way, whatever are the best modalities to use, use those. So some things, actually, it's better for students to take them away, work on them and bring them back, whether that's in an online or a face-to-face scenario. Others uh, are better suited to being in class. So when we're doing uh, really heavy discussion-based courses, those work really well face-to-face. They can certainly work online, but they're a richer experience when we're together and you can read body language and you can hold each other accountable. If uh, I'm in an online class and I can turn the screen off, uh, it's harder for me to know whether or not uh, students are with me. So right. for me, teaching face-to-face is easier, uh, but I, I don't dislike teaching online either. I, I think from the standpoint of you mentioned it, the, the body language and the immersive uh, discussions that, that take place. And and you know what? The the side conversations that always happen out of a out of a topic or a subject are you know, you you just don't find them as much on an online because it's you know, it's very insulated for that. Mm-hmm. In in a classroom environment different discussions come up that are topical that may not be part of the curriculum, but they have Mm -hmm. some sort of influence over Mm -hmm. what we're chatting about. So anyway, um, it was just an interesting time, Mm -hmm. obviously not one we want to recreate. Not like that. No, no, no. Um, So we'll, we'll, we'll chat about that a little bit more uh, in a bit. When you're not working, what do you like to do with the family? Are we fact checking this with my family? Um, (laughs) I'll be honest, there hasn't been a lot of non-working time. I'm working to fix that right now. Hasn't been a lot of non-working time just as I've been trying to finish up a PhD and the challenges of moving us through a pandemic. So I uh, was fortunate enough not to be teaching exclusively during the pandemic, but I was the, the chair of the department during that time. So I sort of had an administrative adjacent role within my department. Um I saw, I saw the emails. <laughs> yeah, yes, you did. Uh, so, but when I have time with the family, so in the summers, for sure, for us, it's getting outside. Uh, we all have kayaks because none of us could ever share the same kayak. So we each have our, our own boats. Um, we do fishing, lots of paddling, uh, camping as much as we can to get out. I'm hoping to do quite a bit of that this year. Um, trying to persuade my kids to play more music with me. What do you play? I play a little guitar, a little ukulele. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm a multifaceted woman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my, my kids play stringed instruments, and now they're, they're exploring the woodwinds as they move through school as well. So I've got a trombone player, and I'm not sure what the next one will be coming up. Um, and do you, like, do you sing? Uh, uh, my version thereof, yes. Yeah. Now, does the family sing together is what I'm asking. Uh, the family that sings together stays together. Yeah. You know, the kids think I'm not super cool. And so they're not quite at that stage where it's cool to sing with mom. I think we're going to get there. Okay. Okay. Because I, I, I will, like any at a moment's notice, I will sing. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Not today. 
Well, no, no. Well, I mean, I could, but I won't. Um, no, I want to actually drive listenership up. So for me, the the singing, though, because I know a lot of families yeah. that, that have played together yeah. and, and jammed together and all that kind of stuff. And it's actually, it, it, it brings them closer together. I've seen yeah. it. Yeah. I've seen it. I think, uh, I shouldn't speak for my kids, but what I'm going to say is that I think that it might be intimidating to be singing um, because uh, we tend to go into the yard and play. So mm-hmm. you're op- it's open air. Right. Uh, and I think there might be a little bit of an embarrassment factor there. The playing, you can hide a little bit, but the singing, uh, it's, it's not really a, maybe not a safe place for that with the neighbors walking by. And Right. Okay. Well, um, and, and that's where the, the costumes from Halloween might come Ooh, out. That We could try that. Yeah. I'm sure that's much safer. Very safe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you ride to work on your bike. Any good stories you can share with, with the group? Uh, that are safe for work. <laughs> Um, any good stories? You had one the other day and oh, I'm... Oh, you want that story? I want that story. So, so the, the nice thing is, is that you have, um, seen a lot, mm-hmm. uh, commuting yes. and, and you ride through, you ride through the city all the time. I so, do. So there's, uh, you know, and, and I think you've had a lot of great days. Yes. But there's the odd different day. Yes. And you had a different day. So just, just just for fun. <laughs> just for fun. Well, hypothetically, uh, I guess it's not hypothetically. Um, you you do meet people with different uh, attitudes towards cyclists, and occasionally you meet different people with different attitudes about cyclists, and uh, perhaps adults. So um, I was riding from a meeting to get back to the college, and I I may have encountered on my journey at a stoplight, uh, a youthful group of folk in a car who may have, and I'm using air quotes, accidentally tossed something out of the passenger window to the sidewalk and narrowly missing me. And as I approached their open window, I casually inquired as to whether or not they meant to throw that at me and and as someone who knows you i know you the first reaction was actually very gentle like you were you were literally you 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 kept uh the high road it was the high road it was i just i inquired as if they they knew i was there yeah because someone could have yeah because who would who would do that yeah you know yeah yes in their youthful exuberance, I just assumed it was an accident right so as we pulled through the intersection um Something else came through the window, and this time actually did hit me. Um, confirming, which, confirming, or that it may not have been accidental. Right. Yeah. So, and and you, um, g- given your propensity for the environment and and saving the environment, uh, you followed them. I, I did. It's a slow road, so I was able to keep them in sight, and then I pulled up beside them because I thought this is maybe a teachable moment. And you know what? You're a teacher. That, well, just that that actions have consequences, and so you might actually have to face me. Um, and it wasn't I did I wasn't intimidating. I'm not I'm five foot two. I'm not super intimidating. Non intimidating. Yeah. So I uh, I went up to the open driver's window and just inquired as if as to whether or not they had meant to hit me this time because that wasn't very polite and I didn't get a lot of eye contact, Rick. Okay. At this point. And, and yeah. having dealt with, I don't know, 
the thousand, fifteen hundred, thousands of students, you actually kind of know how interactions go. Mm -hmm. So uh, this learning moment ended up, uh, there was a resolution, I think. Well, I hope there was a resolution. I did finally uh, get someone to ask me or to, to respond to me mm -hmm. that uh, oh, it was an accident and they just uh, had a bad cherry tomato that they were getting rid of and it accidentally hit me until I pulled away and they threw the third one. <laughs> Rick. So uh, I do know the institution at which they were residing, and I did happen to see an official from that institution, and I may have alerted them to the fact that some students may not have been behaving well. But you know, it was kind of a low. It was a low conflict. It was engagement, a low but a teachable moment. I think so. That actions do have consequences, and every once in a while, one of those old ladies is going to call you on your on your situation. Low-level superhero? Is that is that too much? I don't know. Crabby old lady might have been the other way to look at that. I don't know. Yeah. They got their comeuppance. That's right. What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, useful. <laughs> well, those are lofty goals. Take it from me. They are lofty goals. But really, I mean, there's a million things that I have been, and there's still lots of stuff that I want to do. But at the end of the day, honestly, Rick is that I want to know that whatever I'm putting my hand to, whatever I'm doing has a use to somebody else. So, so define that though, is it, is it, is it the relevance? Is it the numbers? Is it, you know, is it the institution? Cause obviously with the mm -hmm. school of business, but tell me, tell me just stretch out the useful okay. part. So there's, there's sort of two aspects to this answer. One is that I want to reiterate to people that, it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as what you're doing is making a difference to someone. So no matter what your field of interest is or your activity that you do, if you are a server, you have every opportunity to make someone's day a little brighter. Um, it, it, so it doesn't you don't have to be in a position of power, or a position of influence to make a change. Uh, for me personally, I, I want to leave my community in a better place than it than it was when I started. And, and I'm thinking a lot about the future generations, but I'm also thinking about um, what you put out is is what you get back. And Kelowna has, has given me lots since I've been here, and I want to make sure that I'm able to give that back. If I were sharing my deepest, scariest thoughts about what I want to be when I grow up, I really do want to be able to influence change at a at a broader scope. So does that mean the potential for writing a book or influencing policy change? Like those are all things that I see as potential. Um, the other thing that I know is that, you know, I've got 20, 30 years of, of work ahead of me mm -hmm. um, of some sort or another. And so it's exciting that there is still opportunity for me to grow up. My dad, before he passed, was still asking me when I would get a real job. So I'm hoping one day <laughs> that my uh, father will look down and, and think that I have gotten a real job. Wonderful. Well, that you know what? That's the a very thoughtful answer to, uh, to a very abstract question. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, tell me about a concert experience past one and one you would like to go to extra points if the concert that you've been to was local. Uh, I don't, I don't go to a lot of concerts. 
No, I know, but I'm just saying it, it doesn't even have to okay. be a concert. It could be just a musical experience. My very first concert yes. was the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Whoa, Fishing in the Dark. One of my it, favorite it was. Uh, it was in a, I grew up in rural Alberta, just to, to clarify for everyone, so it's not my fault <laughs> that that was my first uh, concert going experience. Um, and these were in the days when ripped jeans with a, a handkerchief underneath them was oh, a stylistic yeah. choice. Uh, so I had a really nice pair of jeans that I wore to this concert, and we had to hop a fence to get in. I won't explain why. Um, and I told all my friends, I was like, be really careful because you can rip your pants on the top of the fence. And I was the only one that managed to, to do that. Uh, but luckily, you could put a bandana underneath the rip because it was not in a very strategically good position. Ooh, one and, of those. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I think I should get extra points just for exposing that. I think, and and great word, expose. Yeah. Um, so Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and and is there an artist or even a venue that looks good to you? And and if if money was not an object, you'd be able to go see an artist. Um, I don't think I'm able to pull out an artist right this second. Some of my favorite venues, though, in the world to go uh, explore music. Mm -hmm. uh, the Gorge in in Washington is yes. one of my favorite places to go uh, and see musicians play. But then I've got a couple, um, anyone who's been to Edmonton who uh, knows uh, White Avenue at all, I spent a great deal of my youthful time at the commercial, which is Blues on White. Um, and I've seen B.B. King's daughter play there. Nice. Uh, I've seen quite a few. It's It gets a lot of musicians that other big cities don't get in a really intimate setting. So I've seen some pretty fantastic blues groups go through there. So I was just at a, a small, intimate, I think they call it the, the living room experience or something like that. And it was Chloe Davidson, mm -hmm. uh, search her up on the old Apple Music. But um, so much more transformative in, in her yeah just in her presence she's an awkward performer like when she spoke she just very shy and and uh but it actually added to her charm she was far more endearing when she when she spoke but she brought up her partner husband i think and they sang a song but they just looked at each other the whole time and it was just you know goosebumps it was uh just a great experience so Music, you know, I, mm -hmm. I love I love being part of that. And it was a Friday afternoon or evening. And I was thinking, I'm, I'm going to stay home. This is it's better. I just rest. So happy I went. And I think that's the key is sometimes yeah. you got to get off the couch. And everybody can have a concert experience. Your backyard is the perfect place. I've mm -hmm. got some neighbors where um, they're they're nice enough to allow me to come over and we'll play music in their backyard. And that's by far my favorite. I'm I'm an introvert. Rick, it might not sound like it, but I am. So, uh, you know, just that those are my favorite concerts mm -hmm. is a bunch of people getting together. Uh, perhaps there's some beverages, perhaps there aren't even, and just a bunch of guitars and other music and voices. And that's the best. I do think if I ever did a performance such as uh, stand up, which is me telling stories about my childhood, which were somewhere hilarious. Um, I think liquor has to be involved because I think it's a great buffer between talent and uh, just a good experience. There is a, there is a tipping point, so do be careful. Well, that. yeah, and that's the key. So I'm going to ask you a question a little bit off the old uh, docket here. Um, I had a friend 
who's who's up in uh, Upper Mission had a bad scare with his daughter. Ambulance uh, said literally they wouldn't be able to get up there. They just couldn't get up there. Could you bring your daughter down to us? They sat in the in the emergency for oof, six hours until finally they just went home. Now, all that being said, is from what you know, and and again, anecdotal and and just based on all the the gray matter in your head, healthcare. Any thoughts, suggestions, feelings about our current healthcare system? I know COVID kind of you know threw a wrench into a lot of people's plans but are are we are we careening towards something we don't want um or is or is there or are we are we fine is everything going to be fine now that the old pandemic is on its way out no i don't think we're fine <laughs> i don't think we're fine um and smarter minds than mine haven't been able to answer this question but i so, some things are are quite broken um and i'm not sure how yet to get those systems working properly. But I think that the way that we account for and view systems of care, in particular in healthcare, have to change. So we have to stop looking at individuals as a series of procedures that happen to people. So um, as we start to cost things out, and this is my business hat coming in here, when we start to think about people as as cost centers, so these procedures cost X amounts of dollars, and this is how we account for the efficacy of our care, then we are going to continue to have these kinds of, of problems. We stop seeing people as whole people. I think, and just to be clear, I think the practitioners, you know, I, I have, have yet to have an experience in Emerge um, or in the healthcare system where a nurse didn't look at me and see me as a person, at least once during that interaction. I know there's there's lots of stresses that goes on. So I think individuals see people as people when they're in those scenarios. But I think that our systems don't view them as people. And I think they view them as widgets or, or costs or um, workflows that need to happen. And so when we lose sight of the bigger picture, which is we're trying to provide people with care, uh, we sometimes get caught up in wait lists and lines and um, union contracts and how people should be paid or not paid and how allocation of funds should go out. And we stop thinking about what's the system supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'd like to see us go back to some of those discussions. So in the if we go back to an earlier topic around homelessness, um, addressing homelessness, people are looking at the systems and they're looking at how the systems interact. We're not doing... Sorry, I, I shouldn't say we're not because I'm not intimately involved, but it, it seems to me like we're not looking at healthcare as a set of systems that have to function and work better than what they do. So would you say that there's, you know, and, and I understand looking at the whole person, but is it is it a, an, a part of the, the program, not the program, but the healthcare process? And because a lot of times it's system process versus people process. If mm-hmm. you have the systems in place, the infrastructure, then then good things happen as a result of those things being efficient. And I do think that my my mother was a, an RN. And even back then when she was working in emergency, she found, you know, the, the workload was the caseload that she had was was immense. And it can... 
I, I think mm-hmm. the amount of people that have left healthcare through COVID who didn't, you know, for whatever their personal reasons were, didn't want to get vaccinated and have left. Now we have huge gaping holes in in staffing. And I don't know if, if that if that's um, part of the problem, if that's a system problem or a people problem or what that is. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not an expert in healthcare, but I would say we were headed down this track anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still the gray wave um, that that we've been having, and now the great resignation that we're seeing uh, post COVID. Uh, healthcare is a different place to work than it would have been 20 years ago. Uh, we see people, um, and this is anecdotal. So again, don't don't think that I have the statistics or the data to to point at to back this up. But I do know from personal experience that we have people in hospital settings that are there because they don't have another place to go. Mm-hmm. So there isn't palliative care for them to go to, or there isn't a long term supportive housing option for them to go to. So we have a healthcare system just like our housing system, which is clogged because that next thing that you should be moving into is either full or doesn't exist. Uh, And that's what I mean a little bit about people-centered care is, do we also have people attending emergency or in the hospital when another setting would be more appropriate? Is that home care, a home care setting? Um, So that's what I mean by looking at the different systems, because does everybody need to go to the hospital? I'm not sure. Uh, But how many alternatives are there out there? We look at the numbers of nurse practitioners that we're able to bring into the system and actually hire in the the hierarchical differences between nurse practitioners and doctors, not understanding really what what each is best suited to do, Um, whether or not we're giving nurses the support that they need to be able to execute their jobs properly. Um, And then all the way down to do we have do we have enough porters in the system to be able to do some of the things that take the burden off of nursing staff. So uh, th- there's no simple solution to the scenario that we're in because we've uh, historically for the last 30 years have been stripping away in our social serving sector, whether that's hospitals, schools, um, the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. We have moved into a scenario where everything is done by quotas, by numbers, by one-year contracts, we've ceased to look at things long-term. And instead we're looking at what are the short-term costs and the short-term outputs, and we're not looking longer-term. And so for somebody like me, that's where my brain always goes is to the system and to sort of taking a step back and looking at that bigger picture. And I just don't know that we have that ability within the construct of how we manage our healthcare system right now. And and what would the incentive would be to, uh, you know, to disassemble it, like reverse engineer it and go, how do we build it, build it better? Like looking across the world and say, okay, which system is really dialed in and which one is really serving the populace and and which one should we emulate? I don't know if there's any kind of advantage for anybody to even look at the healthcare differently other than just, okay, we might have a broken system, but no one really is going to take the ball and run with it because whose job is that? We don't know. Um, and it seems like we're just going to continue to putter mm-hmm. along until something, you know, catastrophic happens or or some other yeah. better option shows its itself. I, I, I just yeah. I don't know which which path we're going down. But tell me about some of your favorite students. No names. But but what what impressed you about them? Oh, just their sheer excitement for life. 
and their their willingness to ask really hard questions of themselves and of other people. Those are my favorite students, the ones that are a little bit, maybe a little bit pushy, a little bit edgy, um, but that whose hearts are really in the world instead of centered within themselves. Um, and they act, they just care and they want to learn and they're they're interesting to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite students have such diverse backgrounds too. They're they're certainly different than me. They have different perspectives than me. Different life experiences. Those that's what makes them special. I think it's and it's fun too when you meet them and they they do have that that verve uh, for life and and just a they're almost like an unstoppable force. And, and I hate to say, you know, who's going to make a, just a massive impact? But you know, a lot of times they come in and they just they just they resonate they mm-hmm. they engage they bring people together they they interact with uh with other students uh, again full disclosure i i was teaching last year at okanagan school of business so i got to see that i got to see some of them that actually gave you a little bit more and the perspective was interesting you you'd always find out whatever you brought up they would have a thought about it mm-hmm. and i did like that because i'm i'm like that too like Engage, participate for crying out loud. Yeah. You know, uh, it's going to sound hokey, but I actually find them quite inspirational. Mm-hmm. It gives me hope that something's going to change. Because I'm not sure I recognized other students like that when I was going through post-secondary. And I'm not sure that I was encouraged to do that. I, I also wonder, I try to pump energy into those students too, because I wonder what could have happened to myself or to my other classmates if they'd had that kind of attention going through if we'd had that attention going through school um and it, it's and by attention i just mean actually having uh someone hold uh hold a mirror up to them and say okay this is what i think you're saying is this what you're saying is this what you really mean um so i i love those students uh, and they do inspire me every day to keep trying and doing something different. And I don't think they recognize that. I don't think they recognize the impact that they have. That just reminds me I should tell them sometimes. And they keep you young. Yes. We have a bit of a labor shortage. Do we? We do. And and uh, is there an end in sight? Are we just going through a cycle? Like, what are your thoughts on on our little... And and, and it's not just the Valley. It's, mm-hmm. it's various other places. But uh, thoughts on labor shortage? Mm. Uh, that's a tough one because I think there are so many things that are culminating into having the labor shortage, right? So it's you can point to the pandemic and say that that so oh, everybody was on CERB and so now they don't want to work. Um, I'm not buying that one 100. percent There there might be some truth in that, but but not 100. percent People that I know that have changed careers during the pandemic did so because it was finally that push that they needed to get out of a job that didn't meet their needs for a variety of reasons. Um, I also saw during the pandemic, a lot of people take stock and say, why am I still doing this? And maybe it's time to do that retirement piece. Uh, And so that's the part of the great resignation is that we actually are finally seeing Sorry, I shouldn't say it that way, but I, I've been waiting for the baby boomers to retire for about 40 years now. So <laughs> I'm hopeful now that there'll be some opportunities for those of us that have been waiting in the wings um, for what seems like forever uh, to move into positions where 
we can make some change or take on some different responsibilities. Uh, the youth or younger folks today are are far more intentional than I think I was about thinking about my career. Um, and they're going to be asking questions about employers and work and asking them from the perspective of what does this job role individual have to offer me? And that sounds a little bit selfish, uh, perhaps to some of our ears. But what I really think you can translate that as is that it's an intentionality that says, I want to grow and build my skills. And is this opportunity one that's going to allow me to do that? Because unlike my generation, this generation has choice. They do. And and I think sometimes challenging the employer, and I, I tell that to a lot of people that are looking for positions is, you know, you're there to interview them as well. Mm-hmm. Is this a place where I'm going to grow and develop or is this a place where I'm just going to work? And 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 knowing the difference. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's the other thing, too. But I think sometimes we we are unha- unhappy because we haven't done our due diligence in saying, where am I going into? Have I talked to any of the other people working there? Have I figured out the legacy of this company, mm-hmm. the reputation, some of the stakeholders? And then you start to get a very clear picture. And then... And only then will you have a, a true picture. Yeah. Uh, short story, I had a startup idea, which was uh, uberemployers.com and uh, wrong name Uber because another company picked that up. Mm. But it was all about telling a story of your companies in such a way to articulate your your culture. In, order, in other words, you get a better fit with that employee and you get a, a happier workplace because mm-hmm. they found a place that's really part of their their niche and, and really in their sweet spot. So, I, I mean, from my standpoint, that was something that was coming, but uh, indeed came along and just screwed up my plans. But anyway, <sighs> I, know, I know. I know. I know. I think for us here, too, in the Valley, you can get complacent because I don't know how many times I was told I took a 50 percent pay cut when I came to the Okanagan. Um, and that was expected. Just 50. It was just 50. <laughs> that was a lot, though, back then. I'm still not making as much now as I made before I moved to the Okanagan. Wow. Like in, in actual dollars, not even in real dollars. Uh, so uh, those of you that are, that was not a, a helpful pitch for anybody wanting to teach, by the way. Just remember, there's lots more than financial reward in this yes, job. Exactly. Um but I think you became complacent because there were enough people and there were enough workers and you didn't have to be an ideal employer and you didn't have to think about some of these things, but you do now. Um, and the flip side to that is, are we actually um, supporting this next uh, wave of people coming in? And I won't use generation because I'm seeing lots of people from a variety of generations come back into post-secondary or looking for opportunities to change their skill set. And the post-secondary world is slow to move and change and shift. And there's reasons for that that are good reasons and some are not good reasons. Um, But understanding what the expectations are and then trying to morph within a structure that doesn't change quickly or doesn't allow for shifts uh, can be difficult. So how are we growing and changing to meet the needs of the students that are coming into us that want to address the labor force challenges that we see in the Okanagan. So I'm I'm hopeful that the college is starting to make some of those shifts to be able to more uh, appropriately support people as they're looking for what that next stage in their life is, whatever that is. Like I knew it would be, well, the first time we met, it was uh, a pre-interview and, and we decided to have a, you know, a barley sandwich at one of the, the breweries. And and I would say it was just an effortless conversation. So I knew today would be. I really did. 
I think that's uh, maybe a credit to your skill, Rick. Whoa, whoa. You, Mutual Admiration Club, two tickets, please. Um, I have a question for you. What what challenges, and you, you spoke about it just just before this, what challenges does, does the college have going forward? And and the reason I just speak about the, the, the college is because we're, you know, you and I have both worked there. Mm-hmm. There's other learning institutions. They have mm-hmm. their challenges too. But is there anything that you feel like, um, uh, you know, the Okanagan college is, is, is really going to be facing going forward mm-hmm. that they really do have to, um, they have to start tackling? Mm-hmm. The first thing is we just released our new strategic plan called Inspire. And I, I am a big fan because it actually does speak to everything that I think that our institution can and should be doing in the Okanagan. So I'm excited about that. I, it's bold, though, in terms of, of how our institution is looking to implement that. And we are a bureaucratic structure being asked to change quickly in a short time frame. So internally, I think that's going to uh, create for a very interesting next three to five years for us. I'm excited to see that change happen. The other challenges for the college are uh, the Pandora's box that got opened with COVID. And so that's changed the way that communities see post-secondary institutions and how they see education. And so when we look at someone like myself who's come through formal uh, post-secondary inst- uh, education and I'm still continuing on with that, uh, do I actually know what the next generation of learners is looking for? So how do we as an institution pivot um, and I hate to use that word, but I just did. How do we pivot and how do we understand what's needed now, not what the rest of us were trained for 20 years ago? So I think that's one of our biggest challenges. And then to address uh, the regionality of what we have. So how do we start to look at um, how we specifically support our region, um, the diversity of learners that are coming into this region from uh, international communities as well? How do we set them up well to be integrating into our local communities uh, with skills and, and knowledge that's going to be useful for them? And how do we all do that? Knowing that accessibility is a challenge, uh, transportation is a challenge, housing is a challenge, affordability is a a challenge, um, and we're not an organization that moves quickly. So how do we make all of that happen? And the the things that we have on our side are passion, amazing people that care so much about the students that we work with, the community that we live in. So I think we've we've got the resources that we need to be able to meet that challenge. Um, and I hope we're up to it. So it, it sounds to me like, uh, is this document available for the public? Mm-hmm. It yep. is. Yep. Okay. There's an Inspire plan on the Okanagan College website. Um, and it speaks to Okanagan College transforms lives and communities. I know our mission statement. I'm, I'm a product of the institution for sure. Um, so you can take a look at that, but I invite you to, uh, listeners, if you're interested, and I invite you to talk to anybody who works at the college. And um, we are going through this process of understanding what that new strategic plan means to us. So engage with them in a conversation. Get them excited. And by happenstance, hopefully you'll get excited and want to find ways to contribute or come and uh, and be with us as a learner. So how how can people uh, listening, how can they engage with the college? Because, I mean, a lot of people probably maybe 
it hasn't even occurred to them that there's different ways to mm -hmm. do that. Yeah, so many different ways. Uh, if you are philanthropically inclined, there's lots of ways to use your time, talent, and treasure. So we're always looking for judges. We're um, specifically in our our uh, area in the School of Business, uh, donors for scholarships or to look to contribute to one of our capital campaigns. So that's the easy stuff, um, contributing those things back. But you can also benefit from some of the work that we're doing at the college. So if you have a research project or research adjacent projects that you'd like to explore. So applied research is really one of the areas that we're trying to expand and grow in. And that can mean anything from us trying to help to find a grant that can can match a contribution by an, an organization with a federal a grant program to get students to come and and work on problems in your institute in your organization then those are things that we can do maybe your community organization that has a, a problem or a challenge that you'd like to see solved or that you'd like to have work uh, work with someone to investigate more fully more fully uh, we have a co-op opportunity for students uh, to be able to do uh, work integrated learning that happens right in your institution, as well as just being able to hire students. So we have a job board for graduates and current students. Um, there, there, there are really lots and lot and continuing studies. So if there are some little learning pieces that you want to explore, we have those opportunities available for you. Um, but there and everything from learning how to build stuff in the wood shop. So you can go as an adult learner and learn how to use all of those fantastic tools. What? Yes, you can. Uh, your kids can come in and learn how to be a pastry chef in our summer camps. Or I noticed there was a camp for Dungeons and Dragons this or Yeah. Yes. D&D &D this year at the college. Is, that's one of the summer camps. So there's so many different ways that you can come and engage and work with us. My son uh, went to one of the camps. He's 18 now, so it was years ago. And it was uh, it was a construct. It was, uh, I think it was called Technics, or it, it was some sort of building mm -hmm. apparatus, like Lego, but bigger. And he had one of the best experiences ever with an instructor there who, who just basically, want, he was a big kid too. So he says, I wonder what we could build today. And they built these amazing structures. I come in at the end of the day and literally floor to ceiling, huge. Mm -hmm. And and they'd, they'd have a little ball or they'd just see how different things moved and worked. And, and his mind just, just opened. And I was just so thankful because I wasn't going to do that with him. Uh, and I'm so happy he, he was able to do yeah. do that. So, uh, yeah, these camps are just wonderful things for yeah. kids. Yeah, so many different ways to connect. And I think you really want to, we really want the community to think that Okanagan College is there to support you in your learning, uh, not just at a specific point in time, but all the way through your life. So we even have uh, seniors that come back to take classes with us too. So it's uh, we're a welcoming institution and we have four campuses, five if you count our Revelstoke campus as well. So we're spread out throughout the valley. We're here. We're fun, really. We are fun. We're fun. We're fun. Super fun. Rick Madison here with Professor Kerry Rempel, Okanagan School of Business. We're going to get you back because we didn't even cover all the stuff I wanted to cover. But anyway, um, I may or may not have been part of a documentary that talked about the gap um, between oil and, and let's face it, Canada has oil, has resources. We do. We have energy. 
And it just talked about we have one customer which tells us pretty much what they're going to pay versus the world market, which, you know, obviously would be a little bit richer for our vaults. Mm -hmm. And so my thought in doing the documentary was how much better Canada might be if we were able to uh, get oil or energy to Tidewater to sell it to the world market. CanadaDebtSolution.ca. And one of the things I, I think about is Scandinavian countries that have have done this have actually been able to pay for post-secondary education mm-hmm. for a lot of their people because mm-hmm. they believe by paying or or getting a getting this money the profitability to build more you know greener technology and and really when you have money you have options mm-hmm. But one of the things that they're doing for their populace is to help them get post-secondary education. Why? And I know that resonates. It should resonate with you. Mm-hmm. Um, why would that be such a, a better future for Canada if if you knew the government with the profit would be able to pay for your post-secondary? Mm-hmm. Like how, let's just talk about the world we could live in. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've set me up for a failure here, Rick, because you've 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 said, you know, how could I not want that to be the future? And it's it's so much more complicated than simply saying that oil revenues could pay for post-secondary because I grew up in Alberta and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that 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 big step, which presupposes that the government actually puts money into um, areas where we're going to see an intentional benefit. And we don't have a. Uh, we don't have a parliamentary political system that actually has demonstrated to me in my 40 some years of living that they think like that. So they don't earmark funds. Are you kidding me? <clears throat> well, I think they earmark funds. I just don't know that the funds actually get there that I can afford to pay for them when they, when they get there. Um, so if I actually thought that and, and could believe that the money that's generated from uh, some sort of production or distribution of oil from in the ground to out of the ground. If I believed that there was a government system that could actually take that and put it to use as an investment, we would be having a different conversation. But I simply have a hard time seeing a reality in which that's the case. But I now have to go watch your documentary because maybe I will... Uh, changed my mind about that. And and I am pretty open. I mean, I grew up in an oil town. As cattle and oil were the only things that made our, our region run. So I understand why it is so important. But I also know that for, th- you know, for the last 30 years, I've been asking the questions as to why aren't we investing the proceeds? And that's because we don't own a lot of what happens with the oil. So where foreign investment takes that money out. So the arguments are challenging for me because I'm not informed enough to understand how all of those monetary funds uh, are used. So that's some ignorance on my part that I could learn more about. Um, but I'm for anything that is is taking our primary resources, is looking for ways to either turn them into something that becomes more useful to us as humans in Canada or is uh, creating other sources of revenue for us and is then investing that money in things that create a social good. Because that's the Canada I grew up with, where we thought about our neighbors and we thought about long-term consequences and we tried to invest. Um, But that's not what I'm seeing happen right now. 
well thought out. So you, so if I'm to understand all of this, is that uh, on the next show you will have a dissertation on this? Now I already have another dissertation I have to do first. Okay. Uh, such a pleasure speaking with you, Carrie Rempel from the Okanagan School of Business, Professor Carrie Rempel, and uh, we'll do this again. Okay. Sounds good.